morning. The reading for today is from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not holy for the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the, God, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ben. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm also one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are here. A uh, couple of things before we get started. I've always got a couple of things before we get started. Um, uh, first of all, how many of you, if, if you remember and were here in 2016, the last time we had a uh, Christmas Day was on a Sunday, and uh, Ben was here. Do you remember what we did on that Sunday? Yeah, so the service was... Uh, my son-in-law, Joey, who wasn't yet my son-in-law at that time, he was engaged to our daughter. And I, uh, the service was actually, we just sang Christmas hymns and did a few readings in between. It was about 45 minutes. Uh, and the sanctuary was full and it was a lot of fun. That's what we're going to do again. So if you've ever wanted to see a lousy musician lead a group of people in singing, um, it might be worth getting up at 10 o'clock and coming in your pajamas to see that. But uh, Joey's going to be here again to help me lead. He actually has a good voice, so he's going to do that again. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to have a hymn sing. And then on January 1st, we're also going to have a hymn sing, sort of a, a sort of hymns that uh, talk about renewal and, and that sort of thing. And Tyler Thompson's going to lead that one, so the voice will be much better. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing on those two days. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, if you were not here last week, uh, we took you through this uh, brochure and a presentation about our expansion plans uh, on this property. And so uh, on your way out today, if you weren't here last week, we'd appreciate it if you pick up one of these brochures. It'll explain just about everything, answer a lot of your questions. And then you can go on our YouTube channel, Redemption uh, Church Arcadia's YouTube channel, and you can watch uh, what we talked about last week, I spoke, Jack DeBarlo, our architect spoke, Luke Simmons from Redemption Central spoke, and then Tyler James, who was just up here, our executive pastor, also spoke, and, and uh, again, be able to answer a lot of your questions. And then if you still have questions, you can email any of the elders or pastors uh, and ask them about that. But we'd love for you to be fully informed about what, what our plans are uh, on, this, uh, on this property going forward. So, uh, let's see, where are we? Oh, we are in the second to last week of this series that we've been doing since uh, the beginning of July called We Want a King, essentially looking at uh, the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and then Solomon. And so we're at the end kind of of Solomon's reign now. And, and so what I want to do is review a little bit, kind of catch everybody up, and then preview a little bit, and then we'll get into the text. And there's going to be a lot of text this morning. If you like to have your Bibles or your phones open to the text, we're actually going to start in 1 Kings chapter 9, then read from 1 Kings chapter 11. We will eventually get there. But we need to look at 9 and 10 also to give you some uh, context as well. But essentially, here's where we are in the story. Solomon is a man of the greatest wisdom that the world has ever seen, and his wisdom still influences us today uh, through um, the, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of uh, Song of Solomon in the Bible. Uh, Solomon also has built Israel into the greatest nation in the world at that time. Uh, Solomon built and dedicated the temple, the very first temple in Jerusalem. 
And Solomon also had accumulated by this time in his life the greatest wealth ever seen in the world up until that time, along with, as you saw in the reading, a thousand women. Uh, it's quite a resume for somebody. But Solomon does not finish well. His wisdom and his wealth and all of his achievements and all of his accolades could not save him from his eventual rebellion against God. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we need to remember that God has a different paradigm for success, salvation, and life. And that paradigm that you and I live in today is the paradigm of Jesus Christ. And we will eventually land on that at the end of this message today. So let's go back to chapter 9 and read the first nine verses of chapter 9. That'll start giving us some context for what's going on. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the, on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. What does that mean? It means that Israel will just really become a blip on the screen. It will be of no significance, even though it is of great significance right now. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus and this land, uh, to, to this land and to this house? Now, again, that actually happened when the Babylonians came in and destroyed them on three different times, uh, some 350 years uh, later. That's exactly what Jeremiah records for us in Lamentations. Uh, then they will say, because they have abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their, uh, their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. We have the advantage of knowing how this story turns out, so we have the advantage of knowing that in fact Solomon and all of the kings after him did eventually turn their, uh, turn their backs on the Lord. And I know this sounds demanding and even reasonable, to, uh, unreasonable to many of us. But when you read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, when you actually get past Genesis, which is kind of easy to read compared to the rest of the Torah, uh, especially when you get into Leviticus, and you read Leviticus without your mind wandering, which I know is a discipline and a challenge, I get that. But especially Leviticus chapter 26, you begin to see that this has always been God's expectation of his people. It's always been the expectation. This was nothing new to Solomon. This did not take Solomon by surprise in any way, shape, or form. The difference between Solomon and us, us however, and of course, is that in the New Testament, we now have the one who has fulfilled all of this for us, and that would be Jesus. And that's good news for us. No one can fulfill all of these laws perfectly. Uh, no one is able to do that. We know that even David did it, and I'm going to talk about that towards uh, the end. But in Jesus, somebody has. And that's why we give our lives to him. He did what we could not do so that we could be reconciled to God, and we could be forgiven, and we could have eternal life in, in him. And at its core, here's what this is about. And it's true for us even in a New, con New Testament context. I want you to understand that this is what God wanted from Solomon. This is what he's telling Solomon. God wants us with him. And, and not just with him, but, but he wants us seeking him and seeking his will and seeking his wisdom. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that one of the greatest things that we can do for ourselves so that our life will go well is to actually seek after the will of God and know what that is. That's what a wise person does, and a foolish person does not do that. The Apostle Paul tells that very uh, plainly to us. Uh, God wants us loving His people and following His heart and embracing and living in His Word. Uh, how many of you are old enough like I am to remember that old Coca-Cola slogan? It was a little jingle. Oh, come on. You want to sing it? You want to come up here and sing it? Things go better with Coca-Cola. Things go better with Coca-Cola. See? All right. A couple of you. All right. So, so here you go. You buy a Coca-Cola, your life's going to be great. That was... Okay, isn't that like false advertising? Anyway, so here you go. God promises that things will go better with Him as well. Only unlike Coca-Cola, God can deliver on that. Coke really can't. Okay? And it's, in fact, it's a fairly common saying of God, in the Torah especially, that if His people follow Him, He says, it will go well with you. In fact, six times in the book of Deuteronomy, that comes after Leviticus, when you're really bored. And six times, in Deuteronomy alone, it says, things will go well with you if you follow me. I, I don't know how we can ignore this, but ignore it, we do. And when things don't go well because we shun God, it's amazing how often we complain to God and, 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 and shame Him and, and, and blame Him as well. Now, the rest of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 are about Solomon's, and I was looking for the right word to describe this, I finally landed on the word prowess. Prowess. Solomon's prowess. Solomon had everything that you and I think will fulfill us. Solomon had the most and the greatest of everything, and I want to go through this list for you. It's ultimately why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, though at this time he did not know the inability of these things to satisfy him existentially. Solomon eventually wrote Ecclesiastes at the very end of his life when he finally realized that the world's treasures could never fulfill him in the way that only God could fulfill him. So, here we go. Let's list them out. First, uh, achievements, accolades, all these things. The first thing is what Solomon built and developed. And it wasn't just the temple and his residence. It was the entire nation of Israel. The nation of Israel would be a developer's dream. Then there was his architecture. It's not just what he built, but the architecture that he put into what he built. It was simply the best. Drawings, details, and materials, all of it. It was an artist and a creative person's dream. Then there were his political connections and his business networking. So LinkedIn would be dwarfed by Solomon. His military stockpiles of fighting men, horses, and chariots. Uh, his... His army was unmatched in the world during Solomon's reign. Then there was his artwork and his art collections. The New York Metropolitan Museum of Art would be dazzled by this collection. We already talked about Solomon's wisdom a few weeks ago. We looked at chapter 3 where Solomon gets his one genie wish and he asks for wisdom. And we talked about this. You and I would all be, I just wish for 100 more wishes. That's what I would wish for. But Solomon instead goes right for the wisdom of Yahweh, the wisdom of the Lord. So Solomon, Solomon's reputation begins with him being the wisest person to ever live. It is recorded that Solomon wrote more than a thousand Proverbs in his lifetime, making up the bulk of the, book, uh, the Bible book Proverbs, uh, which is solely about wisdom and fools, what wise people and foolish people uh, look like. In fact, uh, some of you know I have to bring this up. Seinfeld even had an entire episode patterned after Solomon's wisdom when Elaine and Kramer had a dispute about the ownership of a, bite, uh, of a bicycle and Newman proposed cutting the bicycle in half if you remember that episode. Then there was his wealth. Solomon's wealth has been an issue of considerable contemporary research and discussion. Israel was the richest nation in the world under Solomon. Solomon personally was said to have an annual present-day dollar salary or income of $500 billion a year. That's half a trillion dollars a year in present-day Money. Any, anybody making that much? Because I need to talk to you about the expansion that we're doing. Right? <laughs> okay. 
Uh, it, was, it was said more than once in the Bible that under Solomon's reign, silver was of virtually no value because of the abundance of gold and other precious elements in Israel under Solomon's reign. Here's one common quote. Silver in Israel was as common as stones in the road. That's how wealthy this nation was at that time. Then there was his gardens and his landscaping. The Biltmore would be embarrassed if theirs was compared to Solomon's. And then, of course, his women, a thousand of them, counting his wives and concubines, and some of you will be glad that's all I'm going to say about that. So chapter 10, verse 23, confirms all of this. It says this, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. He had everything. And even the queen of Sheba, or Sheba, however you decide to pronounce it, was impressed. We're told about her in chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Let me read that. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came on my own, uh, until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the reports that I had heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to, the, gave to King Solomon. So, I want to talk a little bit about the Queen. You know, back in the 60s, again, I, I remember living in the 60s, um, unlike some other people. Um, so, we used to say in the 60s of somebody, we used to say, well, who does she think she is? The Queen of Sheba? Anybody remember that saying? Yeah, see, it's an older saying, though, right? Yeah. So who does, she, who does she think she is? The Queen of Sheba? I had no idea where that saying came from until I became a Christian, and now I do. See, that's just one of the great benefits of being a Christian, because the Bible drives so much of pop culture, and then you can understand everything that's going on in the world. Okay. So first of all, where is the land of Sheba or Sheba? It's hard to say for sure, but most historians land on it being in the southernmost tip of Arabia, south of present-day Saudi Arabia. So this was a very long journey uh, that she engaged in. Now, apparently, impressing this queen was not an easy thing to do. She was quite a persnickety person. You can get that uh, out of this, out of this uh, passage here. She was very uppity, okay? But Solomon did it. Solomon more than impressed her. She was primarily impressed with his wisdom, but it didn't hurt that he had all the world's toys as well. But where did that get him, ultimately? His problem was that he was eventually going to wander away from the Lord. Again, this is a classic case of valuing the opinion of others over the opinion of God. Jesus tells us in the Gospels not to allow this folly into your life. Do not chase after the affirmation of man. You are to chase after the righteousness and the holiness of God. And those two things really cannot abide together, we find. People will still admire you, but not for the reasons that you think. Okay, And they will admire you as a consequence of your pursuit of God, not because you want to be admired by other people. But not everybody will admire you, as you well know. Some people will disdain that as well, and that's what's really hard. But, but I mean, think of, just think about it in our current cultural context. Think about uh, social media and affirmation. You know, that's what drives so much of social media. Uh, it's a pretty common uh, narrative understanding and truth that 
uh, in the early days of Facebook, they went and studied and asked um, casino operators, what's the psychology of getting people back to the tables, back to the slot machines? What's the psychology of getting people back into the casinos? Because they wanted to use the same psychology of how to get people to come to Facebook. And it's always affirmation or the hope of affirmation because that's what gives you that dopamine jolt. Okay, so you think about social media affirmation. So at any rate, not only does Solomon have all of these things, all of these accomplishments, these accolades and his wealth, and these, these women, but he also gets a social media like and repost from the Queen of Sheba. That's essentially what's happened. It's this, this is an ancient version of reposting something that you see on social media. So here's what you would do before social media. You would pack up a bunch of camels and travel in a caravan hundreds of miles, then meet with a person and say, I'm really impressed. And then you'd leave all that stuff and you'd go home. Likes and reposts are a lot easier today. And I, and I will tell you, we crave them more. We crave them more. It's designed that way. At any rate, we can safely say that our buddy Solomon has it in the wheelhouse, right? It's, it's, it, and it's all confirmed in chapter 10, verse 23. Now, Think about this. How could anybody look at Solomon's life and not think that he's blessed by God, right? And, and the text even says it repeatedly, that God has blessed him. But that level of success almost always brings us to an uh-oh moment. So here's the uh-oh, and that's what Ben read for us this morning. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So look at all these wives and concubines. I mean, what gives there, right? Here's what we need to remember. Okay, so, Some of you are like, you is. Maybe, maybe more than wife isn't that wrong because God continued to bless Solomon, right? Okay. Here, here's what we need to remember. Just because God allows something doesn't mean he approves it. Just because God allows something doesn't mean he approves it. And we need to let that sink in. Because some of us do things that we know God wouldn't approve of, but we feel like we're getting away with it, so we figure he didn't notice. He's really busy with all those other real sinners, you know. And one of the things, the other things that we need to remember is that just because God does not react to our sin immediately, it doesn't mean that we got away with it. It took some time, but eventually Solomon paid for his sin. And here's one of the reasons why. It wasn't just the hundreds of wives, but it's what these women did to Solomon's heart and faith. That's the problem. That's the problem. And his wives turned away his heart from the Lord. So again, remember what we're told in Deuteronomy 17. God predicted this would happen. God didn't want uh, the nation to have a king in the first place, but he knew eventually they would, and so he uh, allowed for that, uh, but with some restrictions in the Torah, and he writes in Deuteronomy 17, and he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. He also talks about how he's not supposed to acquire many fighting men and chariots and horses, the same thing. All of these things that Solomon had acquired. The Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic Law. We keep saying that so many of the problems that Israel runs into is because 
they and their leaders wander away from God's good word. They know what it says. They just wander away from it. And consider this as a simple and practical point about Bible reading. If we read the Old Testament history and prophets, which is the bulk of the Old Testament, with an understanding of the Torah, the histories and the prophets make a lot more sense. And there's this progression that happens. Reading the, the New Testament without any understanding of the Old Testament is, can be a pretty fruitless experience. It's, it's difficult to really have great understanding. Now, if you know Jesus, that's great, but still, there's a depth that comes with knowing the Old Testament. And so, you, all right, I'll read the histories and maybe some of the prophets, I can get through that. Okay, but reading the histories and prophets is great, but you're going to understand the histories and the prophets great, even better if you read the Torah. So it all builds on it. Read the Torah. Read the histories. Read the prophets. Read the New Testament. And man, it, things just start falling into place. You start making these connections. You start connecting all of these dots. And then think about this. This just stuns me as I read chapter 11. Solomon is the king who built the temple. The temple. But now we find he also built high places to these other gods. Come on, Solomon. What are you thinking? Now, here you go. Some of you are like, hmm, yeah, see, wives. They're the pro are the wives the problem? Not any more than the husbands are. The problem. Can I get a high-pitched amen there? <laughs> it's not about husbands and wives. Okay? We're so deluded in our current cultural milieu. It's not about husbands and wives and men and women. The problem is the old saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. And, and more than we care to admit, the heart wants what the heart wants has nothing to do with God's will, God's grace, God's wisdom, his mercy, his love, his discipline, his provision, and his protection. Our affections are the problem. You've heard me say this many times before if you've been around. The most misquoted verse in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Money's not evil. It's our affections toward it. It's our improper and unhealthy affections toward it. We can use money for good. We can also create money in our own hearts as a god, as an idol. That's the problem. And we can do that with status and power and education and vocation and, and, and sex and, and relationships and all sorts of other things. We can build those idols in our hearts. It's our affection, it's our heart that the pro is the problem. Money is not the problem. You know, we're so distracted today with what I would say is this useless argument about how women are more virtuous than men or men are better than women that we end up missing the point. It's a distraction. The problem is our heart. The problem is our affections. The problem is our self-centeredness. The problem is our wandering. And what we wander to are false gods. You and I desperately need a king, but that king is Jesus. It's not any of these other things. Solomon had a false god problem. That was his problem. It wasn't that Solomon was violating many of God's laws, statutes, and decrees. It's that he was breaking the first one. That was his problem. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. That's it right there. Solomon had become an idolater. I think about this. I want you to really grab this. The things that damage us most in life are not always our sin, but rather the things that we love more than we love God. Those are the things that really hurt us. It was certainly true of Solomon. So here's the question. What altars have you built in your life? What altars have I built? You know, I drive a 13-year-old Volvo with 100,000 miles on it. So I'm really proud of the fact that I haven't built an altar in my heart to the type of car that I drive. I, I'm so proud of my humility <laughs> that I have built an altar to my humility. <laughs> it happens. This stuff is tricky, you know. Uh, I, have I built an altar to spending time in the mornings on the canal bank or on the 
stationary bike or at Orange Theory if I built an altar to that. I, I know that I'm constantly building and then having to tear down the altar that I build in my heart toward comfort. I'm a comfort person. Anybody else have that altar? Yeah. Comfort. You know, it, it, this is something that you have to work on all the time. And then here are the results, the consequences of Solomon turning his heart away from God. Verses 9 through 12. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, which is, of course, what happened. But we're going to see this next week. So what this brought on Solomon was what we might call trouble internally. So in his internal organization, lots of trouble in his family, lots and lots of trouble. The kingdom is going to be torn apart. Also consider this. Solomon had so much special favor from God. God appeared to him twice, not once, but twice. And God blessed Solomon like he had blessed no one before or since. But even that wasn't enough for Solomon. Even that wasn't enough. He still wandered. And then, and then he ends up with trouble externally. Verse 14. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house of, in Edom. So now he's got trouble internally. He's got trouble externally. And then trouble politically. Verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, of Zeradah, the servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. So you've got trouble internally, trouble externally, trouble politically. And then verses 29 through 34, trouble spiritually and in the nation, nationally. And at that time when Jeroboam, and Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the, uh, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces, 12 tribes of Israel. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. So the result, lost are the gardens, the architecture, the networks, the art, the wealth, the women, the developments. But the biggest loss of all was the favor of God. That's the biggest thing, the most important thing that Solomon lost and his kin lost that as well. Now we saw this with Saul and David, and now we see it with Solomon. You know, you and I, we pine for success. I get that. I was in the marketplace a long time. Uh, there's even this, uh, this level of success that people aspire to in church world as well. You know, and, and we're always, there's always tension in that as well. But we pine for success, and then some of us actually achieve it, and then we realize it's not enough. It's not what we thought it would be. And so we're discontent and we're restless. I love this quote. Advertising is nothing more than an intense, an intense, well-strategized attempt to monetize your restlessness and discontent. We need to remember instead to rest in Jesus. And so one thing I think we should discuss as we wrap this up because it's prevalent in our text today. I'm guessing some of you are already thinking about this. Is Frank going to talk about this? It's especially in chapters 9 and 11 is this. 
On four separate occasions in these chapters, God says this or something like it to Solomon. We just read some of it. He says, as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me, here you go, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And in other places, God tells Solomon that he needs to act with integrity for the sake of David your father. So God has this incredibly high opinion of King David. Is this the same David who sexually exploited Bathsheba, who arranged the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, then shrugged his shoulders when his daughter Tamar was raped, and then took a census against the explicit instructions of God, which resulted in 70,000 people in Israel losing their lives. Is that the same David he's talking about? And the answer is yes. So how? How do we get there? Actually, I don't think the explanation is all that complicated. Here's how we get that. David always repented and confessed fully. He always confessed and repented fully. Yes, David sinned. But he also had a track record that's affirmed not only by the history of David, but also affirmed in the Torah, in the Mosaic Law, of confessing and repenting his sin. And one of the places, there are many places in the Torah we see this, but specifically, again, in the Mosaic Law, in Leviticus chapter 26, if you sin and you do not confess and repent it, then you're in big trouble. It could even result in your death. But there's other problems as well. You're unclean, there's all kinds of shunning and things like that. But, but if you repent and confess, God will restore you. You will still suffer the worldly horizontal consequences of your sin. By the way, that's just reality. Okay? But you will be reconciled to God. Your union with God will be unbroken. Remember, this is where David differed in a huge way from Saul. Saul struggled with repentance and confession. In fact, he hardly ever did any until it was the last-ditch effort that he had at his disposal. Instead, Saul was a rationalizer and a blame shifter. Saul was a guy who ducked when the hard conversations came. David instead stood tall in the midst of those hard conversations. And that's why we can say that David was a person after God's heart. David is us. David is us, those who are in Christ, sinner but saved. The difference is that we have Jesus Christ. When we come to Christ, the first thing that you do when you come to Christ, I remember the first thing I did when I came to Christ when I was 27 years old, was I said, I confess that I'm a sinner and I repent of it, I want Jesus. You confess and you repent, that's the thing that you do. Okay? The beauty of Jesus, however, is that he then takes the wrath of God instead of us by going to the cross. Then he guarantees us a new life by the power of his resurrection. That's the beauty of Jesus. And that was God's plan all along. We just are blessed and have been shown favor by God because we get to live in that now. We get to live in the kingdom of Jesus who's done all of that for us. Everything that we couldn't do on our own. We can't do it. But he did it for us, and so we give our lives to him. Jesus is amazing. The good news of the cross and resurrection that we live in today is that Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Some of you remember that song, and you're glad I didn't sing it. See, He's our redemption and grace when we turn away. And, and what's really cool about Jesus is he's never too far away from us. We're the ones that wander away, but he's, he's right there. He's the hound of heaven. And he's our source of strength and energy to, re, re, to withstand the assaults of Satan and this world. Live in Jesus. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy to that which you have been called by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you again for your word and its truth. And man, the, the incredible bulk of what your word teaches us, just in this little story of Solomon, all the wisdom that we can extract from it. 
I'm guessing stuff that Solomon wished he knew going in and probably would try to do differently. God, let us learn from Solomon's mistakes here. Let us be reminded of your grace and your love and let us respond to it, uh, not only in repentance and faith, but also uh, let, us, let us do as Isaiah uh, said when he encountered you. Uh, let us say, here we are, send us. Let us do your bidding. Use us, God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we uh, have our time of reflection and response again. If our communion service would please come forward, we're going to take communion now. If you are in Christ, if you profess uh, Christ as your Savior, this is a time for you to be able to come forward and partake in the, in the Lord's table. It's a, it's a sacrament. It's a sacred time, but it's a time of celebration. We need to remember that. We celebrate the fact that Jesus has done it all for us. And we get to live in that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's with his friends, they're having a meal, and he picked up the bread and he got everybody's attention. And, and after he gave thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. He's looking forward to 24 hours later when they crucify him. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had supped on the bread, he picked up the cup of the wine. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says that as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord, the Lord's death until he comes again. So uh, let's do that now. Come confessing and in repentance, but also come in celebration. And when you get back to your uh, chair, if you can, uh, stand and, and just join in with the uh, people leading us in song and, and sing these last two songs. Street. 
Shackles are 